Hey guys, happy 100th. Yes, indeedy, week 100 of the Holy Shed, the littlest parish in Christendom, where there's space for everyone, especially for you, dear friend, because we may not be big, but we're small. And look, our lovely friend and dedicated Shedster Angie sent us this card this week, which um, is fantastic. It came with a little celebratory badge, which um, I have to say has so far defied my uh, ingenuity to get off and put onto my uh, onto my top here. I'll get I'll get Pat to sort that out for me. But it's great, you know. And she says, "Dear Dave and Pat, one hundred weeks of Holy Shed broadcast. What an achievement and what a gift to the world. Brilliant." And uh, so thanks to Angie for that, and thanks to all of you for you know your support and being part of this journey. And, uh, you know, some of you have asked what we're going to do to mark this occasion of reaching a century not out. Well, having thought about it, I've actually decided to hang fire, if you don't mind, until week 104, because that would mark two whole years of the Holy Shed. So, yeah, happy 100th, but stick with us for another few weeks till we get to the to the two year mark. And I'd like to ask you what you think we should do. Uh, on week 104. How should we celebrate that? What would you like to see? Maybe you can send in some words about what the shed means to you. You know, it could be a Facebook message or uh, an email or, or even a video message, which would be great, wouldn't it? Better still. Uh, some of you may even like to write a song for the occasion. I know there's talent out there. So that's the 13th of March, OK? And any ideas, welcome. I know that um, we'll be in Lent by then and you may have given up the demon drink. But hey, Sunday, you know, is a feast day and you're not supposed to keep the fast on a Sunday. So it's official, you know, cakes, drinks, etc. are permitted in the shed. And uh, I actually did clear this earlier on with our area bishop. Um, <laughs> and she said, do you know, Dave, for you? That will be absolutely fine. So there you go. On a different um, and more downbeat note, I suppose, these are challenging times for so many people in our world, not just the whole COVID thing, which hopefully, fingers crossed and everything else crossed, we are beginning to move forward from. Um, I mean, maybe it's a challenging time right now for you, apart from all the COVID stuff. But I'm especially thinking about the people of the Ukraine right now who are living under this dreadful shadow. Just earlier on today, I was looking at the news and hearing, you know, citizens there speaking about it and wondering what it would be like to be in their shoes right now. And, and I have no doubt there are lots of Russians who are fearing the worst as well, you know, because politics, you know, politics aside, it's the ordinary folk that I feel deeply concerned with now, people who have no control over what's happening. So we're going to begin today by lighting a candle for those dear people, for anyone else that you are concerned with today, but especially for the people of Ukraine and people in Russia who uh, are fearing the worst as well. So grab your candle and light a flame, a flame of love, a flame of hope. Take a moment or two to reach out to people that, hey, most of us have no personal knowledge of at all, but people who are human beings like us, wanting to get on with their lives. 
and living under the shadow of what politicians may or may not decide. So I guess we we all feel a little bit out of control right now. So let's say the Holy Shed Serenity Prayer together. God grant me the serenity to live fully and generously through circumstances I cannot control. Hope to keep on imagining better times for myself and the world and courage to change what I can instead of simply leaving it to others. Amen. Amen. So hey, because uh, I do not wish in any shape or form to be reprimanded for overlooking or worse still excluding the virgins, we are after all an inclusive space here in the Holy Shed, uh, plus it's week 100, so today the gals are taking centre stage. What I mean is we're going to focus on the parable of the wise and foolish virgins in Matthew 25, 1 to 13. We've been looking at various uh, parables, haven't we? And I'll still do that for another week or two, I think. Um, but I've been promising you virgins for some time. <laughs> and look here, look at this great little image that Deb Mercer, another shedster, has sent me uh, this fabulous little painting. I should say that Deb has sent me several lovely illustrations and you'll no doubt see some others as we go forward but isn't this great i love it i love it that the virgins have morphed into nuns too as you can see uh by the still waiting speech bubble there is a little friendly nudge here reminding me to uh let these ladies into the shed so hey come on gals get yourself in here because we're going to think about you today and uh the story is actually also called the ten bridesmaids uh, but in fact, it could also be called, I think, the woefully delayed groom. And maybe you could put it a little bit more bluntly than that. Um, you know, if that's all not too Christologically edgy, depending on what your particular interpretation of the story is. I mean, this is one of those parables with a slightly disturbing absence. There's no mention of the bride, is there? Um, like there's no mother in the parable of the prodigal. Hmm. You know, do you wonder what they made of it all? I know I do. But anyway, here's a summary of the story. There's ten bridesmaids, right? With lamps waiting for the bridegroom. And uh, five of them were told are foolish and five are wise. Some had a plentiful supply of oil in reserve uh, to see the night through. Others didn't. And the groom was so late. And incidentally, it's worth thinking that if the groom had come when he was supposed to have come, this is my way of looking at it anyway, nobody would have run out. So, hey, worth bearing that in mind. Uh, but anyway, he's, he's so long coming, they all fall asleep. Not just the five so-called foolish ones, they all fall asleep. So when the shout went up that he was arriving, the foolish ones asked their friends for some oil because theirs had run out and they had none in reserve. And the wise ones said, no way, you know, go and get your own. And by the time they'd done that, the doors to the wedding feast were shut tight. And when the girls were banging on the door, the bridegroom simply said, No, I don't know who you are. Beat it. And that's the end of the story. 
Now, look, as I've said repeatedly, the way that we interpret a parable depends very much on our starting point. You know, for many, many people, most of us with an evangelical background, actually, uh, the way we read this parable is massively influenced by an evangelical theology of salvation, you know, of the second coming, heaven and hell, all that stuff, right? Sermons that I personally grew up hearing invariably told me that this parable uh, was a warning, you know, uh, a warning that the second coming was going to happen and we needed to be ready for it, for which read, accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour and then you'll be ready. Um, and if you don't do that, not to put too fine a point on it, the doors will be slammed in your face and you'll be told to clear off, for which read, go to hell. Now, the way I see it, and actually lots of biblical scholars see it, the warning at the end of the parable, where after the story is told, Matthew says, keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Um, most or a lot of scholars believe that this is most likely an addition by the writer rather than the words of Jesus. And it makes no sense, you know, because ten women fell asleep, not just five, ten fell asleep, including the wise ones. They too failed to stay awake. Five refused to share their oil and told their companions to get down to, you know, the local petrol station or wherever and buy some of their own. Well, I'll tell you this, if the only conclusion that we draw from this story is be prepared, you know, become a Boy Scout or Girl Scout, um, then I think big deal. Is that it? Is that the, is that the punchline? I think something more profound is surely required from this parable than make sure you have enough oil for which we prayer, faith, belief in Jesus, whatever. Amy Jill Levine, known affectionately as AJ, a passionate Jew who teaches New Testament to predominantly Christian students and quoted over the past couple of sheds here and will be again next week, says that it would be greatly helpful if we could start by asking how the original Jewish audience would have heard these stories, what the challenges or surprises in these parables would be for them. Well, I reckon the way most Christian interpretation uh, loses the plot, if you know what I mean, is that as soon as we see the bridegroom as Jesus, I think then we've kind of lost it. We've gone down a track, right? And uh, that the story, therefore, is essentially autobiographical for Jesus, that he's the bridegroom, that the second coming is, well, coming, uh, that faith in Jesus is the oil in the lamp, and therefore we and not the others get to go to the heavenly banquet. But look, as AJ points out, there's no challenge in that. Uh, there is at best either self-satisfaction or the development of neurosis as we try to stay awake and not be shut out. Um, buying into this traditional interpretation as a boy, I can recall, I don't know how old I would have been, you know, eight, nine, ten, I don't know. I can recall creeping into my parents' bedroom in the middle of the night to check if they were still there and I'd been left behind, you know. So I understand the neurosis of dreading the slammed door, as it were. I grew up with that. 
It's what drove me, age 13, to uh, ask for a decision card from the scary preacher so that I could sign up and know that I would go to heaven when I died, which, as the preacher said, could be tonight. On your way home today, he said, you may be hit by a bus and die. And where would you spend eternity? Inside or knocking on the door from the outside? I mean, it's pretty scary stuff, isn't it? It certainly was to an eight or ten-year-old or whatever I was. Um, Some more liberal scholars suggest that Jesus never actually told this parable in the first place, that it was a creation of the early church. And, you know, well, maybe, you know, uh, my uh, hermeneutic, if you like, could allow for that. But actually, I'm more than prepared to think that Jesus probably did tell this story, but that it was not autobiographical. Uh, I mean, there's nothing here uh, other than a theological presupposition to say that it was, that, that the bridegroom is a picture of Jesus. That's just something that's read in. What if, uh, as, as AJ says, what if the virgins are virgins? The bridegroom is a delayed groom and the oil is oil and not faith or belief or whatever. In other words, what if we stop allegorizing the parable as essentially a comfortable confirmation of our pre-baked theology and instead open ourselves to the story as a story uh, with all its nooks and crannies and its kind of uh, ups and downs and perhaps find a challenge in there for us. Then I think we can start to ask, when is selfishness appropriate and when isn't it? You know, do we rejoice that the bridegroom is late or ask why on earth he kept the women waiting? There's an old, old story. Uh, (laughs) How do we feel about five women refusing to help out their friends, especially given you know, the entire stream of teaching by Jesus in the Gospels, including Matthew, summarised in the Golden Rule. Treat others the way you wish to be treated. How do you fit that into this story, you know? Or do we want to be at a banquet where, you know, a late-coming groom slams the door in the face of our friends, you know? Would we prefer to stay outside with the other women who just got back from the petrol station with fresh oil? In other words, in all honesty, where do we find ourselves with this parable? Is it okay for an interpretation of a story to contradict everything we otherwise learn from Jesus or indeed from just being decent human beings? I don't think so. I don't think so. Do you know what? If I were present in this story, I'd have a serious beef with that bridegroom, whoever you think he was. I would have a serious beef with him. You probably don't know this (laughs) about me, but since it's week 100, I'll let you into a secret. I was once banned from a pub in Clapham in South London. Yeah, I said it. I was banned. Banned, why? For having a row with the landlord. You see, me and Pat were in the Landor pub in Clapham with our kids who were in their kind of late teens, I guess, and and a load of their mates. I don't know. There was about 15 to 20 of us there. And uh, and most of the kids were kind of playing pool. 
and having great fun, you know, one game after another. And they weren't rowdy or out like that, you know. And when the landlord rang time on the bell, he came across to the table and told the kids that they had to stop playing. Which seemed a bit abrupt to me. So as a mature adult, <laughs> as I've always been, I went and pleaded the case, you know. Just let them finish the game, mate, I said. You know, I mean, people are finishing their drinks. You're not kicking them out and saying they can't finish their drinks. The game's nearly over. You know, let them finish the game. No, he said. And then he grabbed the white ball and started to walk off with it. Well, you know, I've got quite a long tipping point, really. I don't, I don't rile easily, but after several exchanges uh, of a very reasonable nature with this man, in which I said, well, at the very least you can do is give them their 50p back because they can't finish the game, you know, which, which, and I don't know why. Uh, well, after, as I say, several of these exchanges and the temperature was rising a little, I did, I confess, say that I thought he was being a prat, which was slightly worrying, really, because, um, you know, uh, since I led Holy Joe's in another pub nearby and there were notices everywhere saying if you're banned from one local pub, you're banned from them all. Uh, but, yeah. He banned me. I mean, it was fine. Holy Joe's pub never heard about it and uh, all was well. And, you know, I mean, maybe I should have just told the kids to walk away. Maybe I should have just walked away. But I have this kind of quite acute sense of justice and injustice, actually, to be frank. And um, if I'd been inside of this wedding feast and watched the groom slammed the door on the bridesmaids, I think I'd have gone across and said that he was a blinking prat. That, you know, why don't you just open the blinking door? You know, that if that was who he was, well, he could stick his party. And I'd prefer to go outside and join the women, the foolish ones, in finding a different party. So, I mean, how about you? How do you think you would have reacted in that situation? For me... There's no doubt that the kingdom of heaven is bound up in this story. The question is, where? Where is the kingdom in this story? Or where is the pointer toward the kingdom in this story? Where's the challenge to me in this parable as I look into my own life and ask, how important is justice to me? You know, what price am I prepared to pay for compassion, for friendship, for loyalty, for love? And how would I react in a world or a situation where these things are absent? Because that is what I take from this parable. Just for a moment, put this story alongside the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin in Luke uh, 15, or the lost son, you know, where to a seeming ridiculous degree, every sheep, every coin... Every person, son, counts. The sheep may be, you know, stupid for getting lost. They're, they're kind of, they've got a reputation for that, uh, whether that's earned or not, you know. But the sheep may be stupid for getting lost. The coin may be a mere couple of pence. What the heck are you worrying about? The son may be a complete and utter prat. But the woman, the shepherd and the father in these stories kept on looking and looking and looking and never ever slam the door as it were and it's the same spirit that stirs in me 
when I read about the so-called foolish virgins. Perhaps I can be a bit of a foolish non-virgin myself at times. So I have to look at this. I love A.J. Levine's comment that if we read the parables as a genre in which cultural critique and indictment and challenge are all component parts in these stories, then they have lasting relevance for all time, for any culture at any time, while there remains in us a propensity for selfishness, for stinginess, for revenge, for stereotyping, or where certain people end up overlooked or excluded in a community or judged by a self-righteous, self-satisfied society. The parables offer us a means to think of different forms of behaviour through which the kingdom of God can be substantiated, uh, can be made flesh and blood reality in the world. I guess my message is try to stop reading the parables, reading scripture in general in fact, through the lens of imposed theological meanings. Just step back from that. You know, the heavens won't fall. You know, thunder won't and lightning won't strike you if you just look at it a different way. Try to stay open to the parable, uh, the text, the narrative. And, well, I think we might just find something quite different tucked away there. Something challenging, but quite fresh in what we read. So this is where I'm at with these strange stories, these tales of the unexpected, which I love, you know, but I sometimes wrestle with. And by the way, did you know that the word Israel means wrestling with God? Um, that, that is the very raison d'etre of the Israeli people, actually, to wrestle with God. But I think it's the destiny for all of us who want to deal with God. There will be times when we'll need to wrestle with God. We'll certainly have to wrestle with the text. I'm asking what in these stories challenges me or presses me uh, toward living the sort of life that Jesus taught and exemplified? And what in them do I find repulsive or at enmity with what I hear Jesus teach? You know, honestly, guys, once we release ourselves from certain dogmatic assumptions uh, or doctrinal presuppositions that are overlaid onto the parables through dozens of grim sermons, you know, a whole new set of possibilities become available, which I find to be more consonant with the life and teachings of Jesus, which I find often far more challenging, but also life-affirming. You know, I come back to something I said earlier in this little parabolic series that I've been doing. Parables should disturb and puzzle us, leave us hmm, questioning both the story and also ourselves, you know. If we hear a story like the one today and we're not disturbed, possibly outraged or enraged, then I think there is something seriously wrong with our moral compass. We're supposed to feel, you know, stirred up by this. And it's in that reaction, in that emotional and intellectual reaction that we can wrestle with these things and perhaps begin to hear 
what they're really saying to us today. I'm going to continue with this theme a little further next week um, and maybe a bit further. I think probably next week we're going to look at the sheep and the goats. Um, but how about you? I mean, one of the things that you would like us to look at as we follow this theme, I'd be really keen to hear that from you. But I just come back and make this one point again, you know, that I've said before, I love scripture. I love the Bible. Uh, I also dislike parts of it intensely and I have argued and wrestled and continue to wrestle with it all the time. Do not be afraid to disagree with what you read, to argue with it, to be riled by it, because that's saying that you're actually taking the text seriously. When I see week in, week out, year in, year out people just sitting there listening to these stories or maybe engaging with, with texts and narratives that uh, on the face of it actually are outrageous and just sit there, you know, like they're saying Mary had a little lamb. Um, I find that really disturbing. Wrestlers with God, wrestlers with scripture, wrestlers with life. Um, that's all saying that we're alive, that we're authentic, that we're staying human. Okay? Okay, a prayer which, thinking about all of this, I wrote earlier on. God of surprises, you seem to specialise in loving foolish people like me who often wander or fall asleep to who we truly are, preoccupied or comforted by whims and impulses of little worth. We're overwhelmed by the patience of friends who, like you, never give up on us, never shut us out or say, this is mine, find your own, who constantly unearth within us precious pearls we never knew were there. May we treasure our own souls, even as they are treasured. May we never cease being kind to ourselves and others, especially those who forget to be kind to themselves. May the watchful, unsleeping grace that holds us also keep us awake to eternally new possibilities for our own life and the world's. Amen. Amen. Okay then. Time for a toast, right? So, if you've got something handy, whatever it may be, I think I've got a glass somewhere. Oops, there it is. Um, pour yourself a drink now, and uh, let's think about the life that God has given to us. So, this, dear friends, is a toast to friends who never let us go. I've got quite a lot of those. I've been blessed to have lots over the years. Most intensely, of course, my beloved, my Pat, who is uh, a friend who's never, ever let me go. It's a toast to friendship that never falls asleep, to feasts and parties where the doors remain open, a toast to divine love that finds fresh uh, and new ways to flesh and blood express uh, that love every day. Oh, and it's a toast to the Holy Shed, to a hundred weeks of sitting here at the bottom of the garden. A toast to sheddy friendship 
that got us through some bloody dark times over these past couple of years. It's to you, dear Shedsters, to life, Lachaim. Yeah, indeed. Now then, let me just have a look what I'm doing. If you like the shed, if you like what we're doing, 100 weeks on, it'd be great if you could support us. And you can do that through buying us a coffee or a whiskey or whatever uh, through the um, coffee site that the link is on your screen. It's always at the top of the posts on the Holy Shed Facebook page too. And um, looking back over these months and now nearly a couple of years, we are so grateful to those of you who have kept this thing going, partly through buying us coffees, but through uh, sending message of en messages of encouragement and saying, please don't stop, Dave. And uh, do you know what? We have reached a century and we're still not out. So look out for more in the future. And there you go. Uh, I've mentioned, but I shall say again, that uh, on the 25th, 27th of March, I'm leading a retreat at this beautiful place. It's called Holland House in Worcestershire. Uh, it is a, a wonderful facility. And I'm leading a retreat there, 25th, 27th of March, called Living Soulfully in which we think about um, a little bit of what Jesus meant when he talked about um, saving one's own soul. And I think it's not about heaven and hell. I think it's about how we live in the here and now. So I hope you might be able to join me for that. Alternatively, or as well indeed, <laughs> I'm doing a retreat at Ammerdown. That this is this is the back end of Ammerdown, the, the garden where there's a labyrinth, beautiful, beautiful place, Ammerdown, down here in Somerset, near to Bath, and uh, I'm uh, doing the long Easter weekend um, there, from Thursday night right through, um, on living Easter in the 21st century, revisiting all the great themes that are at the heart of Christianity, of Holy Week and the Resurrection and so on, and how we can experience all of this in the 21st century in a, in a completely fresh way. So there are things that you might want to join me for. Um, if you're into the Enneagram, then uh, I have an online Zoomed workshop, which is looking at what the Enneagram tells us about the shadow sides of our personalities, dancing with shadows. So that's, uh, that's an exciting prospect as well. And um, yeah. There you go. Oh, yeah. One other thing is that this coming Thursday at seven o'clock, I am leading a soul space, a zoomed soul space with the help of the Oasis Church Social Group in Croydon. But it's all online. You can get it wherever you are. People come to soul spaces from New Zealand, from Australia, from Canada. You know, people have visited from all over the shop and it's great to have them. And the theme this year, this week is uh, coming home, returning to your heart, finding where home is within ourselves. And we'll be doing that through uh, bits of poetry, through music videos, through listening to people's experiences, me gabbling on a little bit and all that kind of stuff. It's great fun. Seven o'clock, you'd be very welcome to join us for that. So now the blessing of God, the eternal goodwill of God, the shalom and salam of God, the wildness and warmth of God, be among us and between us now and always. Amen.
fantastic so uh, that's just about it um i'm going to play us out today with a song by michael franti called my lord and it's one of the songs that we will be using in the soul brace on thursday so i'm giving you a little bit of a taster here really michael franti i have talked about him i think i've played his stuff here before i adore michael franti um i think i will i will make him i think uh an honorary member of the holy shed and also one of our patrons you know because i think he is a bit of a patron saint and so we'll add him i think to the patron saint list of the holy shed why because i think he's such a, a wonderful vulnerable honest authentic person and his music just you know brings that through and i do happen to like his music and uh, he's talk he talks a little bit at the beginning about what this song called my lord what it means to him and i think you'll like it so enjoy that have a good week uh be kind to yourselves to people round about you stay human in a dehumanizing world that's what i say to you and i'll see you very soon bye bye Uh, the song My Lord is an autobiographical song and it's about um, how I was born and given up for adoption as a baby. My birth mother is Irish, German and Belgian. My birth father is African American and Native American and I was adopted by the Franti family who are Finnish Americans, second generation in our country. They had three kids of their own, they adopted myself and another African American son. I, I grew up in this very mixed household. and. And a lot of my life has been retracing my steps, finding my ancestry, searching to find my birth parents so that I could deeper understand who I am as a person, understand the cultures from which I came from, the history from which I came. And all of us go through these moments in life where we look for understanding in something that is greater than ourselves. Some people find it through a spiritual or religious practice. Some people find it through taking walks in the park or the beach or sitting with a close friend and talking or through meditation and being quiet or through yoga. A lot of us find it in music and this song is just a song that basically says that whatever way you find that peace that it's okay. There's seven billion of us on the planet and all of us have a different way to get there. And uh, so it goes like this. My Lord, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord, show me all the things I need to know. My Lord, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord, take me to the place I need to go. When I was born, I was alone. I spend the rest of my life finding my way home.
me to the place I need to go I bought a guitar Now I wrote a song I wrote it down for you So you could sing along The flames of my heart Went pounding through my head Turned into teardrops And this is what they said My Lord, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord Show me all things I need to know Place I need, take me to the place I need, take me to the place I need. 